From Bloomberg Law, this is Uncommon Law. I'm Adam Allington. As of Tuesday afternoon, here are the new developments in the murder trial of Derek Chauvin. Last Friday, the city of Minneapolis agreed to pay $27 million to settle a civil lawsuit from George Floyd's family over his death while in police custody. The settlement easily surpassed the $20 million the city approved two years ago to the family of Justine Damon, who was killed by another city police officer. Floyd family attorney Ben Crump called it the largest pretrial settlement ever for a civil rights claim. It sends a message that the unjust taking of black life will no longer be written off as trivial. Chris Stewart, another attorney for the family, said the settlement wasn't just historic because of the dollar amount, but for the impact it will have on social justice and police reforms going forward. When there's a city council or a mayor deciding, oh, should we get rid of no-knock warrants? Should we get rid of chokeholds? Do we want to change these policies? They have 27 million reasons now why they should. Eric Nelson, Chauvin's defense attorney, questioned the timing of the announcement just four days into jury selection, a fact which he said was highly prejudicial against his client. Because what we've been hearing from the jurors who've come in so far is they may run into a headline record $27 million civil settlement, and the court has granted permission for for these people to be scrolling through Facebook, it's going to be unavoidable. So far, six men and three women have been seated. Nelson asked Judge Cahill for a continuance to delay the trial, and he renewed a previous request for a change of venue. The mayor of Minneapolis is on stage with city council, and they're using what I would say very well-designed terminology, the unanimous decision of the city council, for example. Um, It it just goes straight to the heart of of the dangers of pretrial publicity in this case. Speaking for the state, attorney Steve Slisher argued that the jury pool has already been exposed to other news about the case and that they're selecting only people who can set that aside. Judge Cahill, however, conceded that the news did have the potential to taint the jury. You would agree it's unfortunate that we have this reported all over the media when we're in the midst of jury selection as far as... Yeah, it's certainly not my preference, Your Honor. I don't even know which way that cuts, if that cuts for us, if that cuts against us. You know, the problem is it cuts. Yeah. That's the concern, and I think the defense has a legitimate concern. I think the state even has a concern. Absolutely. It would be our strong preference that we'd be trying this case in a, in a vacuum with no pretrial publicity. It, it certainly would. It would make things a lot less complicated. Ultimately, Cahill said he was not inclined to grant a continuance to delay hearings or a change of venue. However, he said he wasn't opposed to calling back the seven jurors who have been seated to question them for exposure to the news. In recent years, killings of black men at the hands of police have led to intense scrutiny over the use of deadly force by officers. Citizens have marched in protests and departments have changed the way they train street cops. But even with that shift, prosecutors seeking to criminally charge officers for excessive use of force face a number of obstacles, foremost among them being that criminal courts impose a higher burden of proof than civil cases. Echo Yanka is a professor at the Cardozo School of Law, where he teaches criminal law and criminal procedure. Professor Yanka, welcome to the program. I guess my first question is, in terms of criminal law, 
What protections do we extend to police officers that come to bear in these excessive use of force cases that have gotten so much attention in recent years? In some strange sense, police officers are supposed to be judged the way that you and I would be judged, right? They are, you know, while they are officials, the question of whether or not a police officer used self-defense, for example, is the same kind of question you would ask about whether or not um, you used self-defense, right? Was it reasonable under the circumstances? In another sense, of course, it's very different in a formal way, and then it's vastly different in an informal way. Uh, In criminal law, the reason it's different in a formal way is that police officers are allowed to do things to you that I'm not allowed to do. I'm putting aside citizen's arrest for obviously complicated reasons. Police officers are allowed with the Fourth Amendment to arrest you upon probable cause. And so that means they can restrain you in a way that if I did it might be false imprisonment, but they're allowed to do it. And so suddenly there are a bunch of things that a police officer can do to you because they're legally authorized that would be criminal battery if anybody else did it to you. But remember, that's interacting with the fact that their self-defense still has to look like self-defense with any ordinary person. So police officers are allowed to use deadly force against me if they have probable cause. I think the legal term for this is seizing, right? So what does the law stipulate about when police are allowed to seize an individual with deadly force? I know it's an antiseptic way of speaking, and frankly, it's a frustrating way of speaking. But the fundamental question is, when is a police officer allowed to kill Adam? And they're allowed to kill Adam if Adam himself is either threatening to use deadly force to the police officer or to others. And the courts have said this is always judged on a case-by-case basis. So those are the complications that while we're thinking that their self-defense is meant to be ordinary, it's judged in the context of the fact that they can use force to arrest you or seize you in a way that normal people don't typically use. And what assumptions do you think we can draw from how jurors might consider the use of force in the Derek Chauvin case? In many of these cases or crimes, if I were some sort of impressive uh, computer analyst rather than just a law professor, and I could manipulate the video to take a person's uniform off, right? if I could magically make you see the Floyd case without the uniform, It just beggars belief that this person would not be indicted, tried, and convicted for murder. I think if you did not know that this was a police officer and you showed it to the ordinary run of person, they would think this is a criminal homicide. Now, the reason I say there's no uncontroversial answer is because immediately somebody in the audience is jumping up and down and saying, but he is a police officer. This is different. Police officers are allowed to arrest you. Um, and, And so, you know, I won't pretend that I have the magic words to convince everybody. What, I, what we can be confident in is that police officers seem to be judged by a vastly different standard. And for many of us, in particular those of us of color, um, it's not that we're ignorant of the fact that they're police officers. It's not that we're blind to the fact. It's not even that we're not sympathetic to the fact that they're police officers. It's just, it, it just cannot be that that is always the answer. It cannot be that that is that affords absolute immunity from criminal behavior. So based on what we know from previous cases of deaths caused by prone restraint, say in the case of Eric Garner in 2014, in that case, the defense argued that the officer was within the limits of standard procedure and that officers are trained, for instance, to use their body weight to restrain uncooperative suspects. 
So would you expect that to be central to the defense's strategy in the case of Derek Chauvin? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, of course, you know, this touches upon exactly what we're saying, which is that somebody's going to be jumping up and down and saying police officers do have to restrain people. Police officers aren't exactly like you and I. As you say, if this is the procedure and if you're allowed to restrain somebody in this way, and even, defense might argue, even if the training was not ideal, George Floyd, for example, was killed partly because Derek Chauvin kept mouthing the old police myth that if you can talk, you can breathe. Training that we now know from experience. We didn't need George Floyd's death to know that there was that, that training was antiquated and wrong. So, so surely that's going to be part of their defense. But of course, their core defense is going to be the same defense that every criminal defense lawyer holds dear to the heart. Remember, when our criminal law is working correctly, it is the state that carries the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. The state has to prove that this person committed murder. That is to say that they intended to kill without premeditation. That's the classic divide between first and second degree murder. No premeditation. So that they either intended to kill or showed reckless indifference to human life. And they're going to argue that a police officer trying to hold somebody down just wasn't showing reckless indifference to human life. Um, Or at least that the state's responsibility to prove this beyond a reasonable doubt just cannot be met. Professor, as you know, another explanation for this hesitance to seek criminal charges against police is oftentimes because prosecutors consider themselves to be on the same law enforcement team with police. And if and when a case actually does go to trial, juries tend to be sympathetic to the challenges faced by officers on the street and are more inclined to vote not guilty. So in your opinion, does the case against Derek Chauvin rest entirely on that video of him pressing his knee into George Floyd's I'm neck? I'm not unsympathetic to how dangerous policing is. I work with police officers. I work with police chiefs. I'm grateful to great police officers. Um, you know, it's a bit tiresome to hear that any criticism of the police it makes you anti-police. I have mixed feelings when I watch these tapes uh, because I think we should be struck by the fact that we have seen constant videos of black men being killed by police on video loop. But the truth is, once you watch these things, what is brought home to you um, is exactly what it means to hold your body weight on somebody for nearly nine minutes and ignore their pleas as they approach death, to ignore them crying out for their mother, to ignore them begging, to ignore them saying, you're killing me. And one of the things that's true about these videos um, Forgive me, I know I'm playing off your question, but I I can't resist because I think it's important. You you know, I I teach political philosophy through time. W.E. Du Bois, uh, before that, Frederick Douglass is complaining about police brutality. King's famous speech is centered on police brutality. John Lewis's speeches. What we have is an entire history of people saying this is what happened. And then the police often say, look, we had to do it this way. We have to restrain people. Everybody says they can't breathe. Everybody makes up a story and begs off. And so what were we supposed to do? And we live in a nation that has always believed the police officer. And the only thing that's changed is that a few companies now made it possible for us to carry video cameras in our pockets everywhere. And so now when the police consistently report to us, well, we held him down and he complained he can't breathe, but everybody makes up that story and we see it with our own eyes. 
we recognize that in some of these cases, the utter callousness with which the police officer dispatches somebody's life was not a story about everybody made it up. It's a story about being utterly inoculated from humanity and the humanity of the people you're policing, in particular, the black people you're policing. Echo Yanka is a professor at the Cardozo School of Law in New York City. His work focuses primarily on questions of criminal theory and punishment. Coming up, we'll look at the distinction between the various charges being leveled against Chauvin and the burden of proof prosecutors must clear in each case. This is Uncommon Law. The world's financial decision makers connect on the Bloomberg Terminal. The buy side and the sell side, together. Collaborating across markets and countries in real time. Sharing ideas, negotiating trades, and forming an influential network of over 325,000 financial professionals that helps power global markets. Isn't it time you join them? Request a demo at Bloomberg.com professional. This is Uncommon Law. I'm Adam Allington. The third-degree murder charge was the first charge Mr. Chauvin faced last year when he was fired by the Minneapolis Police Department and later arrested. The jurors will also consider an additional charge of second-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. Last month, the New York Times reported that within days of Chauvin's arrest, he agreed to plead guilty to the third-degree charge in exchange for an assurance that he would not face a federal civil rights charge. Then Attorney General Bill Barr allegedly stepped in to reject the agreement, according to the Times. With me now to explain the burden of proof that each of these charges carries is Brad Colbert. He's a practicing part-time public defender, as well as a professor of law at Mitchell Hamlin School of Law in Minnesota. Professor Colbert, thanks so much for speaking with me. So I want to take the murder charges first. What are the distinguishing factors between second and third degree murder in Minnesota? So it's important, I think, to take them separately. You have to take the second degree murder completely separately from the third degree murder and the second degree manslaughter. So the second-degree murder is a felony murder charge, and it's really unique in Minnesota, and it's going to be something that is, it just is a completely different animal. So essentially, what the state has to show is that Mr. Floyd was assaulted, and that assault caused the death. They actually don't have to show any sort of intent whatsoever. In Minnesota, the assault, an assault is just doing the physical act. So it isn't like they have to show that the officer intended to do any harm or anything whatsoever. They have to show that an assault occurred. And I think by the video in and of itself, the video shows that an assault occurred. So there isn't any question that an assault occurred. So for second degree, as you say, it should be relatively easy for the state to prove that an assault did take place. But what about third degree murder and second degree manslaughter? From what I understand, those charges actually hinge on the state of mind of Chauvin, what's commonly called depraved mind murder. It it is a really confusing area of the law. And you have depraved mind, whatever the hell that means, right? I mean, it's really difficult to say what that means. But what the Minnesota Supreme Court has said is that is someone who is acting really, really recklessly. 
and without any care about somebody dying. So it's this incredible, um, just complete indifferent to somebody dying, a callous disregard of the possibility of death. And then you have second-degree manslaughter, which is more of a culpable negligence, not negligence, because if it's just negligence, he's not guilty. So it's almost gross negligence. And, you know, those are pretty vague terms. So it's going to be really interesting for jury to be able to sort that out. And so there are actually so two different branches of this tree. And so they are not necessarily connected. And how it's interesting, it'd be interesting for me to see what the state is going to argue. Are they going to argue, you know, we proved this, and I, I think that's up in the air to see what they're going to, how they're going to prove those charges. But even if the prosecution is able to prove that an assault did take place, for each of those charges to stick, they must also prove an elusive element called causation, that Derek Chauvin caused the death of George Floyd or that his acts were a substantial factor leading to Floyd's death. And despite what we all saw in that video, the defense is likely to argue that Chauvin's knee on Floyd's neck isn't sufficient proof of causation, right? So causation is a really um, complicated legal terminology. And the idea of, is, you know, did he actually cause the death? That seems like a tough argument to me in that, you know, because if even if, let's say, Mr. Floyd would have died by a drug overdose at eight, if he died earlier, then the way the state, you know, way the criminal law looks at it, he's caused the death. So, but that's certainly one of the things they're going to argue is that he didn't cause. And then you, the other piece of it is, you know, you would say, look, he he was just being reasonable. He was just trying to calm the situation down. Mr. Floyd was agitated. He had, and you know, and there he didn't intend any harm. The problem with that, of course, is that under the second degree murder is that he doesn't have to intend any harm. So, but what they have to argue is that he was re- using reasonable force and that he was acting reasonably under the circumstances. And then, you know, I'm confident that what they'll talk about is it's a difficult job and you can't, you can't, you know, a hindsight, would he have done it differently? Sure, he would have done it differently, but you can't apply hindsight to this particular really difficult situation with a lot of moving parts. You have a lot of people around, they're just trying to keep the situation in hand, and now you're looking back on it, and that's not a fair way to judge someone. Brad Colbert is a professor at Mitchell Hamlin School of Law. Brad, thanks so much for talking to Uncommon Law. Thanks, it's a pleasure being here. And that's a wrap for this episode. Coming up later this week, we'll look at the different ways George Floyd's death has changed laws around the country and what the current trial means for police accountability going forward. Uncommon Law was produced by myself, Adam Allington, along with Marissa Horn. Josh Block is the executive editor of Bloomberg Industry Group Podcasts. Thanks for listening. My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the 
incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is, is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Breyer watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224th of it, citing the Passchendaele battle. It's one of the largest battles of World War I. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.